When was the first time you remember realizing that your world was not safe? When was the first time, or what is the earliest memory you have of it kind of dawning on you, that you had this innocence to you, and then you realized that things weren't as they seemed? People that you thought were perfect, you realize now were no longer perfect, and situations that you thought would never change, and even an instant, depending on your circumstance, shifted in a way that dramatically transformed your worldview. So instead of, and maybe another way of saying it, is when is the first time you understood your innocence to be lost? And so one of the things, particularly our team, because I've been saying that I'm gonna preach through this stuff and it's gonna connect to the counseling background, and just as a, as a caveat, we have resources for counselors for you. We have support groups that are gonna be starting as a result of this, um, but I'm not gonna be personally taking on more counseling at this time. This is kind of uh, information for all of us, and I'm gonna be preaching to, to a broader audience and online and with you guys, and downtown is going to be simulcasting this for the next six weeks as well, uh, but on an individual basis, I, I'm not gonna be doing a lot of one-on-one. And so uh, here's how, because we're all together now for this time of, uh, as a group, here's how I'm gonna define trauma for the next six weeks because some of the pastors asked me on such a broad topic, how do you define it? And specifically within the crowd of millennialism, uh, trauma is kind of a, is a, is a, is a word. It's a trigger word that's used. And so here's how I would define it, not that it's right or that it's wrong, but it gives definition to where we're going. And so I would encourage you, and I know I always say this, but specifically in this series, uh, take some notes because there's gonna be some things that you learn and there's also gonna be some things that you can apply to your life and to help other people. But here's the definition that we're running with. A wound that causes you to realize that your world cannot be trusted. That's the definition. Trauma is defined in the next six weeks as a wound that causes you to realize that your world cannot be trusted. And so on some level, that's a broad enough definition to affect all of us. That you're on this trajectory where the world is safe, and then you get knocked off your high horse, or you, know, you get hit in the back of the head by something you never saw coming, and for the first time you realized that your world's not safe. I would define that as a trauma that we're gonna explain later in this message. And I'm gonna just say a bunch of things that I've written down over the course of the last year today to you, and uh, some of them I'm gonna explain, some of them are gonna be taglines, but I want you to have them in your tool bag, and I want you to walk out of this church this morning knowing these things. Here's what I would say about trauma. Something I wrote on my phone seven months ago, six months ago. The pain is not the primary problem. The response to the pain is the bigger issue. I know that doesn't sound like, well, maybe that makes sense to you, maybe that doesn't make sense to you, but what I have found to be true is although the, the incident or you know, trauma is compounded over many incidences, which can be much worse than a single incident and can create avenues for, for deeper psychological unpacking, but regardless of the situation, it could be something that for some people is a big deal, for you it wasn't, or vice versa. For some people, that wasn't a big deal at all, but for you it just rocked your world because trauma is subjective in a sense. But here is the reality that I want us to all walk in as we get started. The pain, although it's bad, is not the primary problem. What is creating the cyclical pattern in your life is the response to the pain. And so I want you to know that as we get started, that how you handle things is oftentimes worse than the thing itself that happened. And so what we wanna do 
as a church is, I was telling the first service, the first service must have wanted to hear about trauma because it was, it was full first service. But what I told the first service was this, is that there's a time in ministry after you've been through several ministry cycles as a pastor where you really deeply want to see change or you just push the eject button and pick a different career. And I think because of how long I've been doing this now, that's where I'm at. I, I don't want to just see more people coming to a Sunday service or even just maybe more superficial matrix of success in ministry and how it could potentially be defined. I want to see real tangible life change. People that are over here in their brokenness, they meet Jesus, they, they get plugged into the body of Christ, and then they end up on this trajectory where their problems are no longer their problems because the Holy Spirit's taken over in their life. That's exactly where I'm at in ministry. That's exactly why I've been preparing for this in my mind for a year. That our deepest desire in leadership at New Life is not to repeat what's been done in our past and then we can actually have this real, tangible, early church, New Testament victory over those issues in our life. Amen? And we don't have to walk out of here the same way we came in here. But as we serve Jesus for long periods of time, there's evidence that our life is changing. That those things we don't want to define us no longer define us. But, but here's the reality that I walk in 16 years in this place called New Life, since 2005, so 17 years. That those things, this is my experience seeing an entire, uh, you know, just a life cycle of a ministry, but then even seeing kids that I knew when they were little that are now adults and watching this whole thing take place in families, that those things when it comes to trauma that we don't want to define us oftentimes end up defining us. That also being said, those people that we don't want to end up like often resemble us way more than we ever intended because, because we don't deal with our stuff. And that's about the most G-rated version of that statement that you'll ever find. Because we put on a face, we put on a religious front, and we don't change. We don't deal with our stuff. Rick Warren said this, I said it to you a few weeks ago, and uh, just a topic of marriage before we got into this, but he says this within the Celebrate Recovery model, and I love this statement because I had never quite thought about it like this, and maybe you remember it. He said, pain is inevitable, and he said, misery is what? Do you remember? Misery is optional. We don't have to walk in misery for the rest of our lives. We can actually have victory in Christ. Pain God uses, misery, that one's on us. And I wrote this down to myself a while back, and I want you to hear it. What makes Jesus so great is that he doesn't just give us a future, but he gives us a present, and he does so by helping us deal with our past. And then I wrote this statement down, and I just, I've had time, right? I haven't been preaching very much lately, if you've noticed. You're like, what does this guy get paid for? Well, I've been preparing. I wrote this down, and I want you to hear this. If you don't deal with your past, your past will deal with you. No one's writing, okay? I'm gonna say that one more time. I've been at this a long time. I promise you I'm right. If you don't deal with your past, your past will deal with you and you'll be a person that you never planned on being and you'll live a life that you never wanted to live. That's how it works. Jesus wants victory. You wanna sit in your junk and you can't forego the process. 
This is the reality of the world that we live in in our broken state. What you think is gone, and I'm gonna say this again later, what you think is gone is simply lying dormant and it's waiting to strike at any moment because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And you think that you know that was an issue of the past and I've been dealing with that in my present lately. I thought some things that I had really worked through, I hadn't worked through. What you think is gone is really just lying dormant and just wait, it's gonna come at a time where you least expect it. And so the goal of this time together as we dive into this text is for us to experience some freedom from the bondage of our past so that, there's always a so that with Christ, so that we can be a bride purchased by his blood that goes out and makes gospel impact in the world around us. It's not just so that we can be happier, it's so we can be on mission and a bride that produces fruit. And so turn your Bibles to John chapter four. I wanna show you the person that's going to stand over all of this is the perfect case study of trauma. And she's a woman that's sitting at a well. She's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. And her story fits perfectly, so here we go. John 4, verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria, that's Jesus. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sinkar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so that translates it's about 12 o'clock, it's noon. And I want to break down why this is all significant. You have to know the story behind the story. There was Galilee to the north. There was Judea in the south. That's where God's people lived. And then in the middle of all of that was this place called Samaria with these people that were hated called Samaritans. They were perceived for good reason as a cult. They had their own Bible. They had their own temple. They worshiped the wrong God. And they worshiped in the wrong place. And when God's people traveled, they would go two days out of their way by foot in very hot climate so that they could go around these people that no one liked. Insert Jesus into the storyline. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus, instead of going around Samaria, goes through Samaria where he goes where holy men don't go to talk to a woman that holy men don't talk to. And he has a conversation with this woman about the brokenness and the trauma of her past and he just starts reading her mail. Have you ever had someone do that to you in your life? It's like, how, how do they know that? Well, when it's Jesus, it's completely supernatural. When it's me, it's just because I've done, uh, dealt with a lot of people that have your same story. I'm not being prophetic. It's just that you kind of know things after a while. Jesus is doing that on the greatest level that it's ever been done. And he says in verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They they walk around the city. And Jesus answered her, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Underline that. And the woman said to her, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
this woman sees something supernatural starting to take place in her life. I think it's in these cluster of verses where she sees something and she goes, something is incredibly different about this story that's taking place right now in my life. I'm a broken woman, but this guy seems to have some answers. And what I wanna do just for a few minutes is I wanna explain to you why she is traumatized and the evidence that's manifesting in her life as a result. Number one, she's isolated. Everyone at the well would have done so communally. It would have been primarily women, if not all women, and they would have gone to the well traditionally probably eight, nine o'clock in the morning. The kids are up, breakfast is served. It's time to not just go to the well to get something to drink. It's time to go to the well to bring something back for the family to drink, but also to socialize as a way to connect with the other women in the community. This would have been the social norm of the day. This woman knows that she's an outcast, and you're going to see why in a second. And so she does something that nobody would have done. She goes in the heat of the day when no one else is around, when she thinks that she can kind of sneak in, get her needs met, and sneak out, and Jesus meets her purposefully right where she's at in this story. I heard a quote, I actually wrote this down years ago, and I want you to hear it. It said this, solitude is something you choose for, some time to draw close to God. It's like Superman has a, a fortress of solitude. As a Christian, there's times where we isolate ourselves and we spend time in prayer or maybe fasting where we're reading the Bible. Solitude is a good thing. It's something you choose for some time to draw close to God. Isolation is what you choose all the time to be away from people. Isolation is what you choose when the trust is broken and you realize your world is unsafe. And so instead of engaging the world and applying the gospel, you tiptoe back so that somehow you can manage this thing called life. That's exactly what she's doing, which is evidence of the fact that she's been traumatized. She's coming out in the middle of the day, and she's sitting alone at the well. She was a broken individual. She was a social pariah. She was a social outcast. People knew about her sins, and she felt the best way to deal with that knowledge was to simply back away. And so Jesus engages her, and I want you to pay attention to what he tells her next, because he just just gets in her business. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Did Jesus already know if she had a husband? Of course. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had not one, not two, not three, not four, but five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband, so you're living with something, somebody and you're playing house. What you said is true. And so another reason that you know that she's a victim of some trauma is because she has this unhealthy need for someone else to be her functional savior. And I know that no one in this room has ever dealt with anything like that. But that's her story. And so she goes from person to person to person to person until she's been married in a, in a culture where this was incredibly unacceptable. Until she's been married five times in a small town where everyone talks at the well and everyone knows that she's looking to something that can't satisfy her and she just keeps repeating the process over and over again. The definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting what? Different results. I mean, in her fantasy-driven mindset, 
She probably has good intentions, right? Husband number one is Prince Charming. Husband number two, he's going to save me. Husband number three, third time's a charm. Husband number four. Husband number five. People's life expectancy wasn't very long in the New Testament. This probably would have happened pretty quickly. And rest assured, these men are users to their core. To think that at any point in the process that she wasn't abused on various levels is ignorant. At what point does she go draw water from the well, look into the water as if it's a mirror of her life and say, maybe I'm the one that has some things that they need to work on. She's dealing with trauma from her past and Jesus is engaging her in her trauma and this is what he says. Or the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Can you imagine Jesus? He's probably like, really? Wow, that, that's profound, right? Because I just told you stuff. There was no social media. I told you stuff no one should have known that I knew. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither of us on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, talking about Jews, what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's a reason we know she's dysfunctional and she's been through trauma. This is broader because this is all the people that she's around. She's spiritually confused, and that's the world that we live in. She, she has some ideas over here. She has some ideas over here. She's got this little bit of Judaism with her Samaritan background. Uh, and she kind of knows what Jesus is about. And, what, and she doesn't realize he's the Messiah yet. Uh, but she realizes that he has this different view of how things work. And the bottom line is uh, she's just completely confused. And theologically, Jesus is now putting her into her place in a sense. And the, and the last thing is this, a case study on this woman. She is traumatized, and the evidence of that, the manifestation of that, is that she has unresolved issues from her past. How many times has she been abandoned as if she chose to leave every man that she had been with? What was her relationship like with her dad? Probably not good. She has this thing from one relationship to another, and, and the pain is just transferring on to the next situation and the problem with the pain is it doesn't just transfer to the next situation. Here's what actually happens. It compounds upon the next situation. And so by the time Jesus meets her, she doesn't just have situations that she's dealt with. She has a compounding pain that creates a greater distrust, and she is traumatized. And here's the reality. Here's the cold, hard reality. Look at me when I tell you this. It is all around this space. You're listening online, it's all around the cyberspace that you're living in. First service, it's everywhere. That's not outside of the church. This is my experience. This is the frustration that we need to walk in this victory. It's not outside of us. It's right here in this room. That her trauma is our trauma, that her story is our story, but the Bible talks about this reality when we meet Jesus and he really engages us that change is not something that's strongly recommended. It's something that naturally happens. And then in the church today, in a spiritually anemic state, we walk in our same junk over and over and over and over again. And so week one, here's this lady's story. I'm not quite finished with it yet. 
But I just kind of want to build this case for why this is so important, why you need to get your hand on this book, and why you need to start asking yourself some bigger questions as to when is enough enough with the same dysfunctions in your life. And the first statement is this, write it down. I want to build a quick case. Trauma has to be addressed. It has to. And if it's not addressed, what's really happening in your life is it's lying dormant and you're perceiving that as a victory and that's not real. It's going to come back and it's going to come back with some fire to it. Your problems have not gone away. They're just lying dormant. And here's another statement that I want you to hear. What you think you're controlling is really controlling you. Evidenced by the way that you live, your ability to have healthy relationships, and the freedom that you are not experiencing. What you think you're controlling is really controlling you. And the reason that I know that, I need you to look at me again, is because it takes one to know one. You hear me? It takes one to know one. The reason I can say this with certainty is because I know myself. It mandates that you live in a place of distrust and fear. And although trauma has a spectrum, I'm going to deal with the worst symptomology first just so you know, hey, I really have a problem here that's not being addressed. Here are some of the ways, if it's really bad, that you know you're dealing with it even though you think you're not. If you are missing or you losing time, if you're spacey, it could be the reason you're spacey isn't you know, ADHD, it isn't even depression at its core. The real reason is you have trauma that you have not addressed. If you deal with flashbacks and nightmares, if you have unreasonable, this one's common, attempts to rescue others, if you have extreme fears that appear without any logical reason, if you tend to be a divisive personality that thinks in black and white, sometimes that's a sign. If you don't just have some panic, but you have repeated panic attacks. If you have to be hyper vigilant, constantly on edge, searching for threats that don't even exist, and living in a sense of delusion, in a sense as to who's out to get you, it could be that the reality of your life is you're dealing with some trauma. If you have inappropriate levels of self blame or excessive survivor's guilt, Hear me on this one, because this one's big. If you have difficulty with relationships and attachment, if you have feelings of worthlessness and ongoing depression from unresolved trauma, it could be a sign that everything's not okay. If you, here's my own mirror, if you have a high level of conflict avoidance, the root cause could be trauma. Eating disorders, self-harm, Constantly feeling like a victim. These are all signs that manifest in the person who hasn't dealt with their stuff. These are the things that Christ is giving victory to for the church. Trauma has to be addressed. And here's my big home run example as to why this is so important. It's a bit counterintuitive, but it's 100% real. Here's what happens when you're a trauma victim. Trauma lives at a well by itself. Trauma's favorite time is 12 o'clock when no one else is around. And trauma lives in this place, and I want you to hear this because if you miss it, you miss something important. Trauma lives in a world of selfishness. And the reason that's counterintuitive is when you think of a victim, you don't think of selfish, right? But trauma lives in a place of selfishness, and here's why it lives in selfishness. Because everything that's going around in your mind and in your heart 
is so overwhelming, maybe it's your anxiety as a result of things that you've been through that you haven't had victory from, that you just simply don't have the capacity to really care for other people because the lion's share of your, trouble, of your, of your emotional energy is going to those things that are inside of you instead of being a per- person who is pouring out into the lives of others. And so trauma has to be addressed because trauma lives in a place of selfishness. This is the second thing as we start this thing off that you need to know. That trauma is a byproduct of realizing your world is not safe. I already said that, but I want to make sure we understand it. Trauma is defined by a womb that causes you to realize that your world cannot be trusted. And trauma is a byproduct of then realizing that your world is not safe and responding in a way that's unhealthy. Trauma has less to do with the size of the so-called event and more to do with the fact that you didn't see it coming. And so your brain does something when it gets hit by surprise. Your brain goes into self-preservation mode and says this on a subconscious level. This is what's going on in your brain because it's an organ designed to protect. It says when you realize your world is not safe, then now you're going to be in control of the script Because no one's ever going to hurt you like that again. And what's crazy about it, what I said at the start is, it's subjective. Like trauma for you might not be trauma for me. And trauma for me might not be trauma for you. It's a bit subjective. Some people just roll with things. And other people, something happens and it shatters their world. I mean, there's some commonalities, no question. Some common ones are, you know, you're a child, you think your parents have a great marriage and, and that your, your little bubble's safe and then you realize, they come to you, they say they don't love each other anymore and now everything blows up. Or you thought you had a secure job and all of a sudden you get in called into an office and you get fired. Or you thought you had a safe relative and it turns out that they had horrible intentions for you and for your life or or you thought that no one could ever actually really die and your grandparent or your parent or your close relationship, someone you love, you've lost, or, or maybe you're in a marriage and you thought everything was safe and then you realize through, through, through deceit that they weren't loyal to you and they weren't you know, giving themselves just to you or maybe even you're a kid and you're being bullied, whatever the situation. Trauma is a byproduct of realizing that your world is not safe. That's exactly what happened to this lady. That's exactly why she's going to the well at 12 o'clock and not with all the other ladies. Here's another one. Write it down. I feel like more people are writing now because you're like, oh, this is actually worth writing down. He always says that, but then it's not that good. I want to hear some pens. Are you ready? Need more space? Good. Trauma finds trauma. Trauma finds trauma. This is the dysfunction of the wheel that's spinning. And uh, someone asked me a few months ago, do you you ever just feel the weight of saying things knowing that you're offending people? I don't anymore. I actually kind of like it. I do not know why. Analyze that at lunch. I don't know why, but I kind of like knowing that a good thing is offending people because it can produce change. And so here we go. The reason you keep finding dysfunctional people in your life, you don't have to look at me, it's, it's too in your face, it's because you're dysfunctional. The reason that everyone around you is dysfunctional 
If you're an adult, I think you're exempt if you're younger because you can't control that necessarily, but on some level you still can, is because you're dysfunctional and like attracts like, water finds its own level, and trauma loves trauma. Now, trauma doesn't love the byproduct of trauma. Dysfunction doesn't love the byproduct of the reality that you have to walk in because you're being dysfunctional, but trauma loves and finds and is a magnet to trauma because like attracts like, and here's how this actually breaks down. You have a basic human need that you might not understand that you have, but there's enough evidence mounting for me to ensure that you have it because it happens with everyone. The comfortable principle that I wrote down is this. Everyone wants to feel comfortable. It's a basic human need. And so what you will do is you will gravitate towards those things that are comfortable, even though they're dysfunctional, and you will do that because it feels safe to you. And so now insert change. If change is ever going to happen, here's what I tell people in counseling, and it's a free gift to you. You have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable until it feels comfortable or you have no real chance for being a producer in this thing called the mission and vision of new life, making more disciples. You will always be someone who needs to be fed because you will be too spiritually anemic to feed anyone else around you. You will continually go to the well of dysfunction and find people that are just like you because it feels safe and it feels comfortable. You have to, if you're gonna change, you have to get comfortable with uncomfortable until it starts to feel comfortable or you have no chance. Trauma finds trauma. Dysfunction attracts dysfunction. And somebody has to get off the crazy train. Relationally. This woman's broke. And so I want to say this as well because it's week one and I just want to kind of just put it all out there. Relationally, this woman's broke. And so she keeps going to people that are broke emotionally and spiritually to try to fix her because trauma attracts trauma. And what I want to tell you, because I know that so many of our own stories, is that as you're looking for those next periods of your time in your life where you're actually seeing gospel transformation, I want you to hear this. In order for someone to get you, because that's the, that's the basic intrinsic need, in order for someone to get you, they don't need to be like you. And when two people who have been traumatized find each other, the byproduct is codependency. If you've been through stuff, praise God, we're all broken. But if you think I can only be with someone else who has a similar narrative, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for disaster in your life. In fact, what you should be doing is finding someone who can be a rock in your life. Ladies, if you've been traumatized or you've been victimized, you don't need to find someone else just like you. What you need to find someone else to do is spiritually lead you. And if you don't make that decision because the easy way out is to feel comfortable and not get, you know, not get, in this situation where you feel like, well, I don't really wanna tell them things because they haven't been through my things. What you're really saying is, God, I'm gonna try it my way even though my way has proven to be broken. Two different stories are not just a good thing. Two different stories really is almost a mandate in your life if you've been through some heavy stuff. Someone does not have to experience everything you've been through to somehow emotionally connect to you and that's a lie that you're being told from by Satan. Trauma attracts trauma, and it is much better if you have a narrative of hurt in your life to find a rock in your life 
if you want to have real victory over these issues. The wheel has to quit spinning. Don't allow for trauma to be the magnet for more trauma. Verse 25, we're going to start wrapping it up. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. So she has this theology that's all over the place. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now check this out. Jesus chooses her early in the book of John to reveal himself. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. I think that's worth underlining. I think that's hilarious and sad. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They are on this leadership team, but they don't have the guts to say it to his face. Here's why that's so interesting. Two reasons. The first one is this. Jesus, because he's this spiritual leader, shouldn't have been talking to any woman. And that was, that was kind of the moral code of the day. But then on top of that, he really shouldn't have been talking to a Samaritan woman. But despite the social fupa of the day, he decides to engage her because he knows all things about her. He starts reading her mail to her. She recognizes now who he is, not only on a larger scale, but personally in her life that change is happening in the here and now, that this is a, a watershed moment in her life. And she starts relinquishing all of this shame. I want you to feel the shame in this text that the disciples don't even want to call him out they just see what's going on, and the shame is in her story. The shame is in her five husbands and now six guys she's living with. The shame is in the water well at 12 o'clock. The shame is in then this religious man should not talk to this woman, you know, this woman of the night, this social pariah. And what I want you to hear about trauma is trauma and shame, write it down, are close friends, if not best friends, if not Siamese twins. They're attached. Try to find a trauma story that doesn't have some type of shame attached to it. Try to find a sexual abuse survivor that won't in some way feel the shame and the weight of all of that's happened to them in their life. You won't find it. Because trauma and shame are very close friends. When you start hearing stories and when you start feeling the weight of why people go back to the same stuff that they haven't had victory over, what you'll hear are some common narratives. And one of the most common is this. Why didn't you, you know, finish the process? Why didn't you finally get into that healthy, you know, Christ-centered relationship? And one of the things that you'll hear is this statement. I didn't think I was good enough to live this type of life. What they're really saying is I'm feeling shameful for everything that's happened even though a lot of it was just not even me. It was an attack from Satan on my life. But I'm feeling the, not conviction, but condemnation of this past, and I didn't think I was good enough to have this type of life. And the gospel has to be applied. It has to be applied because the gospel says this, that everyone in this room, if you had the perfect upbringing or you look like the woman in this story, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And without Christ, we are in absolute trouble. 
No one is good, not even one. That even our good deeds in Isaiah are like filthy rags before the Lord. The gospel has to be applied to our trauma. That all of us are on the same playing field. That none of us are good enough. That Jesus was good in our, 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 that Jesus was good in our place. And that we have to be uncomfortable. We have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable until it becomes comfortable. The shame and trauma are closely knitted. And they have to be addressed. And so this woman is starting to feel the liberation of this encounter with Christ. And the story concludes like this. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, here's how you know she's experiencing freedom. And she says this statement that's my favorite statement in the whole narrative. She says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. How long did that conversation take place? Is it possible That John's just giving us a little bit of the story? That they had this time, this amazing healing time where she's unpacking all of these each individual narratives in her life where she's giving her garbage to the Savior and he's in turn pouring out his love and his grace on her life. He's revealing himself to her even though everyone around her says that she's unworthy. She's experiencing this healing in her life and they went out to the town to come to him because they wanted the same thing and they said, could this be the Christ? Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants freedom. Everyone wants healing, but so few people are willing to surrender to the Savior to get it. And so many people are experiencing deep-rooted lives that the way to get that healing is to turn inward instead of turn upward to the Savior. Last thing I have for you, we're closing this thing out, come back for week two, is this. Jesus transforms trauma. He transforms it. Change happens in a variety of ways, but look at how it changed in this text. It happened in verse 29 when she said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come see a savior who knows my suffering. I don't have to be a social pariah. I don't have to be an emotional recluse because Jesus is enough. And so what's your story? I can about promise you if you'll just do this one quick move you'll identify it more you'll identify it quicker than you expected that if you insert yourself in this narrative and you think about when she's saying these things come see a man who told me all that I ever did when you think of yourself in that narrative and you think about that conversation that starts taking place within the recesses of your mind that's the trauma that needs to be addressed When you feel that tug at your heart and you go, oh man, I can't believe she told him that because that's something that you're dealing with, then you know that that's probably the root cause. There needs to be a time with Jesus dealing with all that I ever did so that when you do that, when you do that, you experience healing. About an hour before the 9.30 service, I I tested it out on them. I had some people told me that this makes sense. I felt like there was this idea that honestly, of everything I've said today, because I know we're just saying a lot, was really the thing that I want you to take home. And the statement is this. The goal with trauma, write it down. The goal with trauma is that it becomes a testimony, not a resume. Here's what I mean. 
A testimony is a direct opposite of a resume. When you're applying for jobs, which I haven't done in a long time, hope to not for a long time too, just so you know, okay? When you're applying for jobs, and they're bigger jobs, you can't just have an application. You have to have a resume that's professional. What does a resume do? A resume puts all of these qualities about you at the front and center of everything you want this person who has power over your life in a sense to make future decisions about you in the front of their brain. I I can type fast. I'm good with people. I'm punctual. I'm this. I'm that. Like you, You don't put a lot of bad stuff. And when they ask you for a bad thing, you say, I just care too much, right? You're just a big liar. And so you put all of those things out there on a resume. And what you're saying with that resume, what I was thinking at 8.30 in the morning when Greg was giving me a donut from Casey's was this, that you take that resume and you say to that person, here are the things that I've done in the past and just so you know, because I've done them in the past, it's a predictor of what I'm gonna do in the future when I work for your organization. It's the exact opposite of a testimony. A testimony is this, I have done these things in my past or I have had these things done to me, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I no longer do what I used to do. I no longer live like I used to live. And I'm not just kind of come to church each week and act like everything's okay and check the boxes and you know, go to church or go to a Bible study or tithe or you know, whatever that is. I'm not just trying to look like a good Christian. You need to hear my story. This is how the church multiplies when people have stories that are radical for Christ. This is what used to be me. It's not my resume, it's my testimony. I'm telling you with my testimony, I'm not that way anymore and you could take it to the bank, not because I'm a big deal, but because Christ died in my place and transformed me from the inside out. The world wants a resume, Christ wants a testimony. Christ transforms you from the inside out. This woman's life was a mess Her marriages were a mess. Her emotions were all over the place. But everything changed when she met Christ. Jesus breaks this spiritual mold, talks to an unholy woman in an unholy place with an unholy people group, could care less about the social norms of the day because he's God. And what I want you to hear as we close out this time, week one of trauma, is that Jesus is safe. He's safe. No one else gets it, Christ gets it. No one else apparently can be trusted, Christ can be trusted. And the beauty of the story is that he's a safe savior and you don't run from safety, you run to it. And the beauty of the story above all other things is that she never pursues him and this is the gospel. This is God's sovereignty. She never pursues Christ. Christ goes out of his way on all sorts of levels at the wrong time of the day to pursue her trauma. He doesn't just allow her to come to him. He's not just yelling out in the crowd and he goes, oh man, I'm busy, but I better make time for this woman who can't get her act together. He goes on this track that no one wanted to go on to pursue a woman that no one wanted to pursue. He gets off his eternal throne and he comes to earth, long walk to the desert, at a well in the middle of the day in the desert, And he pursues this woman, and Jesus Christ has been pursuing your heart 
evidenced by the fact that you could be anywhere right now and you're sitting in these seats. Change is not optional. Change is mandatory for those that love Jesus. And he throws out the life preserver of the gospel. The gospel is the good news where he dies in your place. He rises from death. He sends the Holy Spirit to transform you. And it's not just a future with him. It's a present reality of transformation with the Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. I pray that anything's not of me that you'd throw it away. No one would remember it. And everything that's straight from you would not be forgotten. We're excited to live this new life in you. Anyone that doesn't know you, I pray that right now they would repent of their sins, that they would recognize you as Savior. They believe that you died on the cross for their sins. They believe that you rose from death so that they can have life. And that they would recognize you as a Savior that can be trusted with their heart, with their life, with their past. And for the rest of us that have been going through motions and not experiencing victory, I pray that this would be a season of change. This would be a season of growth. Pray these things in your precious and holy name. And everybody said.